I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm David Clark. And we love to watch. We love to watch A Bishop in a Turtleneck. You want it, baby? Hey, Pete. Hey, David. They got a great fake dick in this movie. It's it's an expression I've never heard before, and I've never forgotten. Like, I forgot so much about this movie, but I've never forgotten Bishop in a Turtleneck. (laughs) Well, first we should, yeah, first we should, I think I've heard that before. I went to Catholic school. Um, A lot of bishops, a lot of turtlenecks. Uh, But thank you so much for coming on our podcast, uh, David. We've uh, feels like we've been talking for years, uh, but we we're very excited to have you on. Thank you. We will introduce you more in just a second. But first, if you've never heard us, where we love to watch, we are uh, a movie podcast. We really tried to, you know, a lot of open space. You know, we don't want to go to like crowded Manhattan from a podcast genre standpoint we want like <laughs> open ranges where you can get whole plots of land and set up farm and everyone that comes by needs to stop to get water and marry your sons and daughters but uh yeah so we do we do theme months we we pick a theme we do four, three four or five movies around that theme uh this week is the last week of musical may part two and we are ending it with uh um, one of my favorite musicals of all time, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Uh, I definitely thought it was itch for until I saw it. Uh, I think most people did, um, unless they were uh, familiar with the stage play, which I definitely was not. Uh, having uh, first first seen this in, uh, in on the video shelves in North Dakota, the video <laughs> rental store I worked on. Wait, um, you're saying you weren't, uh, you know, uh, part of the New York uh, queer musical scene circa 2000? I wasn't, and I wouldn't have invited me either. But in retrospect, it's it hurts a little. I mean, <laughs> there I was, senior in high school. I was doing musicals, but yeah, the call from New York didn't come, Peter. Thanks for bringing it up. Sal Hirschfeld was not drawing the cast of your high school musical? Uh, <laughs> no. I forget what our director's name was, but he was not available for the... He, I think he missed a couple calls is essentially what happened. Orson Welles Jr. Yes. <laughs> sure. That was his name. Uh, I think his name was uh, Ron Barbie. That is that is a very appropriate name, I will say. <laughs> Ron it's Barbie very, sounds like a made up name for sure. It's not. Well, I mean, I don't know if he was in the witness protection uh, program, but he had uh, my senior year was his last play that he directed at our high school, and he had done it for twenty seven years, and it was a play that he had written and had first performed uh, in his first year. He wrote the play. He wrote the play. His partner, who had written the music at the time when they did it, uh, it was called Professor Fennerstein's Magical Musical Review. It was a lot of fun, and I played Professor Fennerstein. Uh, and but his uh, partner who had written all the music for it had went on to like he scored TV shows and something. And he actually for the, his the final performance, uh, our senior year, he flew in from he was somewhere in uh, Europe scoring a TV show down there, and he flew in for the last performance. The guy that had written all the music for it. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it is nice. That's nice a story. nice story. Yeah, so I still have the script somewhere in my my giant boxes somewhere of random like passports and card titles that I cars I don't own anymore, and that script is somewhere. 
But yeah, I, did, I was not part of the New York queer musical scene uh, during that time, unfortunately. You just say the musical scene. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> um, I was a part of the North Dakota one. Uh, but yeah, so we were that we're huge this straight one. musical scene. <laughs> no, that, there was at least there was just a bunch of re- revivals. That's all it was. Yep. <laughs> so we, yeah, we were very excited to have David on for this episode. I have said this is my second favorite musical. I hadn't watched it in a few years after I kind of fell in love with it. Um, the soundtrack, on the other hand, um, I has been in like constant rotation since I first heard it. Um, we'll we'll talk more about the music. I can speak pretty pretty honestly that this is definitely my second favorite like music for a musical outside of like a little shop of horrors. Um, but one thing that we're going to get into quite a bit, I'm sure, is some of the um, criticism of this, which I spent a long time reading prior to this episode, because it's, you know, it's obviously from a perspective that um, I don't necessarily have, but I think it's important to represent it, at least for uh, the best of our ability. So, you know, having read all that and then rewatched the movie, I do have some 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 stuff about the musical that I didn't. I didn't notice the first couple times, and I'm sure we'll get into it more. But before we, yeah, do very few all of that... us noticed that in uh, 2001. Yeah, we exactly. Out, we were like 13 or whatever. Yeah, 14. Yeah. Um, so I think we're gonna have a lot to talk about. I still really like it. I uh, but seeing it through that prism as well, I can completely like the. It almost seems very like obvious why um, there's some rightful criticism of this, yeah. especially in representation, especially when it comes to the idea that this is like a, uh, a trans-positive um, musical. Yeah, so, I have some thoughts about that as well. So we're going to get into all that, uh, but before we do so, Pete, uh, sorry, David, uh, <laughs> you've never been on a show. We want you to be able to introduce yourself to our audience. Why don't you uh, tell everyone three things about yourself? Sure, yeah. Um, so, I know this is going to be blow your mind. I've seen every single Iron Man movie at least once. <laughs> Holy shit. Wait, no, that's wow. not a real one. That's not a real one. Uh, I fell asleep through Iron Man 2, so I can't actually claim that. Um, okay, so three. I was be like, did you see the animated one? Yeah. David? <laughs> I, so I used to do musical theater and improv comedy. And that culminated in a brief time of doing musical improv where we'd make up a musical on the spot. So that was that was fun. Uh, Can you do that right now? No, I don't have a piano player, and I'm... <laughs> I'm actually right next to a piano, um, but I, I don't know how to play piano. It's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> you just um, put it You just put it right next to you to kind of taunt you. Yeah, like, yeah. If you guys want, I can kind of... Here, hold on. This is going to be so fun uh, for me to sing along with a piano on a Skype session. No problems <laughs> yeah, with yeah, that yeah. at all. It'll work. Yeah, it's not like there's any right. delay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's. Great. Perfect. I think that's good. Hedwig, Hedwig. We love to watch. (laughs) That's the new theme song. Were you trained by Ralph? (laughs) The dog from the Muppets? Because (laughs) that playing sounded exactly like someone who kind of understands piano, but trying to play it uh, with his hands in a in a Muppet. (laughs) It was me trying to play with mittens on. 
<laughs> oh, oh, did yeah, you want? What, what number? Are you I on? think we're only on number two. Yeah, no, no that okay, was give me. That was number one. The first one wasn't real. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay, I learned about Christianity through Andrew Lloyd Webber and Stephen Schwartz. Yeah. So Jesus Christ Superstar and and Godspell. Oh my God. Godspell. Yeah. Yes. You learned so much better than uh, I did through years of Catholic school. Like <laughs> I, you got off so much easier than I did. Yeah. Well, you know that's that's how the Jews learn about the Christians. <laughs> through, that's why musical theater was invented to explain straight people to gays and <laughs> to explain Christianity to Jews. The Jesus Christ Superstar one's great though because there's at the end. He doesn't rise. He just is dead on the cross and it fades out. And you're like, yep, that makes sense to me. <laughs> a lot of disco in the Bible. Yeah. I think I might want to convert. <laughs> and you oh, better man. hope the Cohen brothers are representing you well, because that's how uh, most people in America are thinking of, of Jews through. <laughs> I always thought it was Seinfeld. I'm fine with the Cohens, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seinfeld and, and Netanyahu. <laughs> oh god yeah i know it's not good yeah pretty um, pretty 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 pretty, bad. pretty, pretty, pretty bag. apartheid state yeah. um but topical. yeah so a topical <laughs> it's gonna be topical until we're all in a nuclear wasteland Aaron. I'm really sorry. you think you don't you don't think this whole thing's gonna get solved if you listen to this episode a year from now <laughs> I'm just expecting it all to blow over. <laughs> well, um, Israel had a potluck and things are really shaping up right now. Mm. <laughs> I, I don't know if the Palestine should eat that food. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> number three, this is going to be, I already can tell what kind of episode this is going to be and I'm psyched. Uh, number three. <laughs> I'm in an ongoing one-sided feud with Al Roker. <laughs> It'd be great if the one side was his, but I'm suspicious it's yours. Uh, yeah, no. Get it's... fat again. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it, I was on a game show, and I won, went to the final round. Al Roker choked big time, cost me a lot of money. Wait, and, what uh, game show? I was on this show called Hollywood Game Night with Jane Lynch. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I never watched it, uh, but. I'm aware of it. Don't you like infotainment? You know, <laughs> I don't like you, info. It's, and it's I love a quality laundry folding show, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of things when, when I had less time, when I had kids and less time for TV, a lot of a lot of stuff had to go, go out the door. You had to prioritize things you cared about. And the first thing to go was that thing where you just are like, I'm not changing the channel tonight. <laughs> I haven't, um, look, I haven't even seen the show. <laughs> did, Wait. You see, you, did you see your episode? I did watch my episode. I'm incredibly narcissistic. <laughs> I wanted to make sure that they put all my jokes in and they took out the dirty ones, but it's okay. What would you have won? Uh, so I would have won twenty five grand, but I only won nine grand, which was still nice. You know, that nine was grand still, is good. That was half of my night's work. Half of my in, yeah, it was half of my yearly income at that point. <laughs> when I was how, God, yeah. How was, did you get on the show? Uh, I did a uh, let's see. I, I sent them a thing, and then they were like, "Hey, we like your thing. We want to do a Skype thing." I did the Skype thing. Then they flew me out for a day, and I did like an audition there. And then they f they flew me out again, and I stayed at Universal Hotel and. I uh, went to Universal Studios all by myself, and it was amazing. Don't let anyone tell you you can't go to a theme park alone. <laughs> There's no line waits. And in the middle of a, like, 
middle of a Sunday afternoon when it's overcast and everyone's afraid it's going to rain. It was perfect. Um, and then I did the show and made some money. Jason Alexander was lovely, by the way. He was on it, too. Nick Cannon. Like Who else was so on it? Nick it Cannon. Al Roker, Nick Cannon. Uh, Nishi, Nishi Nash from okay. uh, Reno 911. Will Sasso from, like, uh, the Three Stooges movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and I and, think Mad TV. Um, yeah, the, the Jane, Superior Saturday Night Live. Jane, <laughs> Jane Lynch hosted. Um, who else was on it? Oh yeah, uh, so Al Roker, Jason Alexander, and then Josh Gad, who was a huge prick, but he was yeah. a prick. Yeah, he was kind of a prick. Yeah, Gad Zooks. I wouldn't expect that, that out of him. <laughs> the dude that the dude that everyone seems to hate. On the, uh, uh, the right, yeah, on the internet the, at least. The best show jokes that Gadzooks would be his like uh, his production company name. I think Julie Klausner <laughs> his, was his like production pod. Yeah, <laughs> he seems like someone that you could ruin his day just by calling him Olaf once. <laughs> like, even as a rich Hollywood star, someone's like, "Yo, Olaf." He probably just goes home. It's <laughs> just like, now, he's the kind of guy who goes off on you for looking him into the eye t- in the eye too long. Like. Yeah, I, he seems he's a menacing guy. I don't I do not like him at all. But it's nice to hear Jason like Jason Alexander. I think because I have a perception of him as a tool in real life. And I think that's because he has very successfully portrayed himself as that on Curb Your Enthusiasm. He's so sweet. Um, yeah. So it's it's great to hear that. And there's a lot of jokes on, especially on that season seven, about how Jason is a ridiculous person who's pretentious and hard to work with. Um, and sometimes you always wonder, especially with Larry David being involved, like how much of that is like him kind of, you know, exaggerating people's qualities. But there's all that stuff from the Seinfeld DVDs, too, where Jason Alexander is kind of like, yeah, I had a little bit of a big head on my shoulders and was making demands and stuff like that. So it is it's great to hear that he's a, he's a sweetheart in real life. Yeah, I mean, he he made money. He, like, demanded a lot of money from the network. All about that. He was not on an episode, him, and, and he said that he did that whole thing where he walked in and said, uh, if, if you ever don't include me in an episode again, I'm walking out of here. <laughs> I'm walking out of here. That sounds like a very George George Costanza move. Yeah. Yeah. And then he comes back the next day. Pretends like, like it never what's happened. My, yeah. What's my scene this week, Jerry and Larry? <laughs> uh, that is great. That Your number three was pretty... It's pretty good. Yeah, it's um, the best for last. We don't have a competition for best stories, uh, but we should because you'll win. Uh, we can't offer you nine thousand or twenty five thousand dollars, but we can offer you one free episode of. Oh, okay. Love to watch. We're pay- we're charging yeah, for these, right, Peter? You're doing stipends. Uh, yeah. Lunch stipends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You gotta give us your ticket, and then we're like, here an episode. Can you validate my parking? No. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm from New York. The thing. You do it. You do it. I know you do it. Do your New York drag now. Come on. You know you want to. Hey, David, how you doing? Oh, like a good pizza. <laughs> I, I, hey, David, I, what do you got is, against El Roca here? Is that, a, is that a New York accent? I just thought that's how people who like pizza talk. I had no idea. I'm just a huge fan of Mario. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we covered it on the show. <laughs> I feel like it's a pretty accurate representation. Mm. Uh, it's a Bob Rose. Yeah, if we went Luigi, that's even more like, hey, Mario. <laughs> uh-huh. Hey, okie dokie. <laughs> it is weird, though, to kind of be called on it by someone from there. 
uh, in the middle of the episode, like, hey, do that thing where you make fun of me. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, I, though. Hey, totally... yeah, it was all uh, uh, laughs and giggles last week, but this week you're not doing the fun New York accent. What's that about? Yeah, what, not funny Not funny anymore? Uh, it's okay, David. Totally not stereotypical to have a uh, random, harsh confrontation from a New Yorker. Um, when people <laughs> totally just were having a good time. Yeah. It's, it deserves it. It earns it. <laughs> I, used to, I used to work a sales job. It was like a phone sales job. And one of the guys I worked with, he had this voice that was like, hey, yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm going to look at your bills over here. We're going to talk about things, see what's going on. Um, and he would be like, yeah, I've been in this business for 45 years, seen everything. He was 22. <laughs> <laughs> but he was you know, so but, convincing <laughs> but but peter you know i'm just realizing you're from an area that also has a stereotypical accent i've never heard you do a chicago accent and you never will is it just i would just do like the bears that's what i would do i would just right? do the uh the ad for the chicago code when the guy's like you want to fix things in Chicago? And they repeated it like over and over again for like a year. I think I watched that show. That was um, it was the guy who did the Shield. Yeah. And, oh, well, I thought it was the guy from like Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I always forget his name. He's yeah, good. Yeah, Jason actor. Clark. That's my brother's yeah. name. It's the same yes. spelling. Yeah. Um, he's, he, so he's, that's funny. a Chicago accent. My brother's name is Jason Clark, and he uh, he works at Giphy, and so he does a lot of gifs. And yeah. if you search his name, you'll find half these weird animations that he does, like of butts and stuff. And then the other half is like hot poses from like Jason Clark from Planet of the Apes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the weirdest <laughs> thing. <laughs> Sexy Jason Clark and then weird animated uh. disturbing Jason Clark. Oh, he's into weird butts, huh? He sounds like he'd be a fan of the show. Why, why is this? <laughs> Let's get him why, on. Why is Jason Clark drawing all these butts? On Giphy. (laughs) (laughs) But the Chicago accent is, uh, it is similar to the stereotypical New York accent in that, in that it's like. You don't have to put much effort into it? It's it's about like braggadocio more than anything, but but it's a lot of, hey, Bob, we go down to the park and get some Polish sausage. Like, it's like you have to collapse your neck a little bit. It's a bean. To to actually get there, yeah. Go to the bean. But the thing. Check out the bean. You know what? Cool thing. (laughs) It's a mirror. uh, It's a big bean. Uh. Gotta go see the bean. You know, I hear these kids making fun of the bean, and it's just not right. It's just not right. I mean, that park, before they came in, that park was just shit. And uh, pardon my language, but it was just shit. And uh, <laughs> then they put in this, this big bean. I know it looks like a big clitoris, but uh, it, it, the city needed it. I gotta say, I gotta say, IO, not into it. Annoyance theater all the way. <laughs> gotta go to the annoyance. <laughs> If you just do me a favor and just do that for the rest of our podcast, I think <laughs> really ideal for me. They do go to uh, Chicago in this movie, but I believe it's a set uh, that is... The Billswater? The Billswater's rotating Bilgewater. set that's yes. like the same bar. They're just re- shooting it from different angles. It's yeah. it's one of my favorite gags in the movie, though, that like no matter what, they're just playing at a Chili's. The Billswater New York is my favorite. The idea they've made it, they're finally in high society, and they're playing at the Bilgewater, New York. Yeah. (laughs) But it's still, like, it's just a little more full. Like, the crowd at the Chili's is just more into it at the end. Yeah, exactly. It's It's the Times Square Chili's. It's still a Chili's. I I respect it, because Hedwig is like, it doesn't matter if they're just eating dinner at the Chili's. Like, I'm doing my crowd work. 
Um, <laughs> like, I'm not just going to sing and get this over with doing the whole thing every time. She is a a show a show woman a showman to the end there when she has one person in the audience she's still like well at least come sit on the stage with me <laughs> do you guys want to start talking about hedwig and the angry inch oh i didn't watch oh, it oh yeah Uh, so welcome back to We Love to Watch. Peter, I am alternate taglines. What do you think about that? Um, I think you should go ahead with it. Oh, okay. okay. I, was, I forgot who it was for a second, and then I said Peter, and because I did not want to admit a mistake, I just said something different than I normally would have. I No, I thought you were giving me a chance to drop out because of my dumb teeth thing, but... Peter! I gotta, fig- I gotta figure it out at some point. Peter! Do you want to drop out? No, I'm good. Of school. Both. Oh, of school? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Am I still uh, enrolled in school? Yeah, I you, uh, you have a lot of... at the wheel. You are have a lot of incompletes. I've been talking <laughs> to all your teachers. Um, You know, try harder. Man, the yeah. truant officers could just murder me. I think that's at this point. Well, the problem is you didn't give them their forwarding address. So that's been the issue there. <laughs> It's a no. joke that's very funny to Peter and to no one else. Uh, those are the best jokes for a public audience. Yeah. Uh, jokes specifically targeted to me. Specifically Aaron targeted tried to send me a package, and uh, it went to my old address. Oh. Uh, <laughs> very funny, guys, right? Yeah. It's, it's a relatable bit of comedy. It's cute. Um, now he has to mail it again. Um, yeah. Do you ever know? You ever notice how post office sometimes, like, you try to mail something like this, and then it goes like this. Mm-hmm. That's my. White nose. people mail 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 like this. <laughs> how are you um, mailing it? Yeah, there's a, there's a big ellipses on the end of that joke. I'm yeah. not. Yeah, I'm not that's it. it. Just yeah, just white people mail like this. <laughs> this isn't. I'm not one of those compare and contracts comedians. Uh, yeah. So alternate taglines would be. Uh, Hear the great songs that make your wife look at you weird when you're singing them to yourself. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That's good. Also real. I was like, I was like not, no- I sometimes, I do that thing where like when I'm doing tasks, I I don't notice I'm like randomly singing stuff to myself, but I'm not really singing. I'm just doing like, you know, under my breath almost like, you know, lumps and alone. <laughs> like, and I don't even notice I'm doing it. And I did do it once. We were, like, in the process of moving houses, and I just watched Hedwig and the Angry Inch, and I was singing Angry Inch to myself and not even really realizing it. exchange operation got botched. Yeah, she's like, did you just say where your penis used to be, where your vagina never was? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a musical. She's like, Okay. She just had never heard of it. I, understandably, a very weird thing to hear someone or a, a unexpected thing to hear someone mumble under their breath in like a half sing song uh, tone. So, Peter, do you want to do the quick recap? I sure do. Ugh. Do <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no. I All sure right. do. Click. <laughs> the movie opens on Hedwig, uh, who's performing with her band, The Angry Inch, which were her uh, Eastern European uh, bandmates, including her Eastern European um, uh, partner, uh, Ishtak. 
And the rest of the band, do the rest of them have names? I don't think it really matters. They just, is it Yitzhak? Like, Yitzhak? Yeah. yeah. Gathered in Croatia. But they're sort of a European rock band that came to America and is now performing across these this failing uh, seafood restaurant chain across America. They both have regular gigs, but they are glammy, big uh, persona and their 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 stagecraft and their level of, of commitment to to their sort of their belief that they will be big someday. They will break through is sort of betrayed by the fact that they're playing in, in these this, this re- these restaurants by mostly bored patrons. And all their songs are actually really big. They're just big performed by someone else. And also, I would say, like, their their thing is not we're going to be successful. Their thing is, like, we're I'm going to get revenge on my ex. That's really what the yes. tour is about. Yes. So we find out very, very quickly that Hedwig used to date the, you know, arguably the biggest star in the movie, which is Tommy Gnosis. And Tommy Gnosis is a... Uh, just a, a a straight dude, a straight cis dude, um, who dated Hedwig for a while and then stole all of her songs. So she is understandably very angry at Tommy Gnosis. They are end up performing all these gigs along the road, and it's mostly sort of a road movie until like the last act, maybe the end of of the second act, where you were sort of finding out more about Hedwig's past. Hedwig was a in um, East Berlin during the USSR, and then she had a um, a transition at one point because a uh, U.S. Army soldier uh, wanted to marry her and said, "This is the only way we can get married because of the, the marriages require an inspection." And then I can get you out of East Berlin. Uh, a year later, he abandons her on the eve of the fall of the Berlin Wall. So it was all for naught. And in that that chaos and that tragedy, Hedwig uh, is rebirthed anew as a, a phoenix and rises from the ashes uh, in her new glammy big persona there is general chaos in the band because Hedwig is of course very angry about her her place in life and that this person she you know used to love has betrayed her like this and is getting so famous off of it directly drives her and Ishtak her uh, partner apart it's it's I gotta say it's Yitzhak 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 okay cool Thank you. Two uh, Gentiles and a Jew. Oh, my God. <laughs> drives uh, Hedwig and her partner apart, and they begin to uh, dissolve. Her partner runs off. Yitzhak runs off to do a, uh, a production of Rent. We can pause and ask a quick question. David Cameron Mitchell, fan of Rent? John Cameron Mitchell. Shoot. I knew I was going to do that. I don't think he's uh, a fan of Rent. No, I think he's got You taste. don't think so? No, really, because it, it's I think really it's, subtle that he might not like Rent. <laughs> the, 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 the first big laugh in the movie is when Yitzhak is listening to the cast of Rent wearing the Rent sweatshirt with all of the like the punk. The band is like they're all acting like punks. He's deeply in into this Rent soundtrack. And that's like it's meant to be funny. Rent. I trust John Cameron Mitchell too much uh, taste wise. He was actually offered a chance to play one of the lead roles in Rent and then turned it down to, I believe, perform the original musical that this is based on, um, which we will get to in a minute. But one thing really quick on Rent, my favorite gag in the movie is when he, when they see the cast list for Rent and everyone is described as edgy. <laughs> yes, it, it's, it's so funny. Yeah. And it's also like Yitzhak abandoning 
their like genuine thing or whatever this thing is that's kind of this off-broadway thing this kind of like independent thing for this you know very like filtered version of what queerness is you know so i think that there's something to that as well but we're still on the plot so i'm not gonna rent is something that for years i was like there are better gay musicals right like (laughs) i don't have to like rent hello dolly is (laughs) (laughs) and then and then i found a million other things including hedwig you just got to find the queer coding and things and then you don't have to be stuck with uh (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) every musical written by queer people is a queer musical so yeah but but i was 15 and i thought subtext was for cowards um so uh the band starts to sort of dissolve at that same point uh hedwig goes hooking hedwig goes and puts herself out um to the to the whims of um hasidic men driving by in, in, in cars and then she ends up getting picked up by tommy gnosis who's sort of prowling and tommy picks her up and they sort of have a a, they butt heads and they clash and then he admits that he stole all the songs and And offers like says like hey i'll put like how do you feel about this cd if it says all songs written by both of us and then with a sharpie and then then they start partying because they're so like excited about their thing and then they start arguing again because she's like I've been living in ignominy because of you for years, and I also you broke my heart. Like you did a lot of shitty things to me. They crash the car. He immediately runs, sprinting away from her because the public spotlight has put the fact that he is in a he's in love and has you know clearly dated a trans woman in the spotlight, and he's just too cowardly to admit that a he stole the songs and b he was in love with and is dating a trans woman. Um, and that that makes but that makes Hedwig. Uh, inversely huge because Hedwig became, becomes sort of a, a rising star because of this. She gets on the cover of magazines. She's on the Rosie O'Donnell show, which is one of my favorite details. Every crappy movie uses like Jay Leno. It's like, hey, we're going to talk to Hedwig. But like this movie understands <laughs> what would actually happen. And Hedwig would, would maybe be on the Rosie O'Donnell show. <laughs> well, what's funny yeah. is that yeah. uh, fun fact. Yeah. Uh, they were on the Rosie That's O'Donnell true. show performing songs for this. Mm-hmm. And when Rosie it was O'Donnell on Broadway actually, or off Broadway, right? Yeah. And uh, so and Rosie O'Donnell actually had to stand up for them because the studio didn't want them. Uh, uh, John Cameron Mitchell to perform um, as Hedwig. Want him just perform as um, to not not do the drag uh, thing. And Rosie O'Donnell fought for it to be like presented as it would have been in the show. Um so that is why that clip's in there. Rosie O'Donnell's pretty cool in a lot of ways that get overshadowed by her, like, truther era. But, like, she did some cool stuff. She was pretty cool of her, in her time. I didn't even know did about her truther era. She On The a, View. That's depressing. Just ignore it. Oh. She, she had a cruise ship for mm-hmm. lesbian mothers and yeah. their children. They made a documentary about it. I watched the documentary back in the day. And I was like, Rosie O'Donnell's a pretty good person. And then years went on. And like, I would just see headline after headline. And they were too depressing to actually read the articles. And I was like, all right, well, I mean, she's also a little nuts. But Rosie O'Donnell used to stand up for people. I don't follow that stuff. Like, I don't know. Like, it, shit happens when you've got money and you're in the spotlight all the time. And you're already a creative personality. I, I don't know. I don't did she do anything like she was just she's a like she's a loud mouth right gross but at least it's not like a anti-vaxxer or some shit like if you genuinely did believe that sort of thing wouldn't you feel there was some moral imperative to say it i don't know yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. It's just a little For goofy, sure. right? But yeah, I, I do not I did not actually throw Rosie O'Donnell out, but it was it was kind of fun to see her again in this like this specific era when I used to watch that show when I was sick from school. Like that's that's how old I was, so it was like a daytime talk show that I still remember her bandmate John and she talked about how much she was in love with Tom Cruise. Like, and she, yeah. And she had like the cush <laughs> the cush dummy the cush thing she would throw, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. She was kind of like like Ellen DeGeneres' show is that it fills that same void of like kind of like a little bit of like she, the way she put a little Merv Griffin in the in the afternoon. Yeah. There is something like relaxing about that kind of show. Like there's something relaxing about like just wholesome joking. Um, And that one is very, very funny, which is a plus. Well, and we didn't have cable. So it was like I either watch that or soap operas like at a certain time once all the game shows were done. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, so the, the last sequence of the movie is Hedwig makes up with Tommy Gnosis, who's performing alone on a stage. Uh, this might be a fantasy. It might be real. Something we also have to dig into. I feel like it's a fantasy. Hedwig has torn off all of the uh, feminine clothes that Hedwig was wearing. The the bra with the tomatoes filling the bra and smashed the tomatoes on herself and has taken off the wig. And it, it's sort of a transformational moment uh yitzhak has taken on that more feminine persona and seems like blissful about it seems very happy uh and is performing with them again which also implies it's sort of a maybe a fantasy uh at the end of the movie uh hedwig stripped down to her core and having uh worked through some of the demons that the, the bitterness and resentment um is now left here naked and walking off uh, theoretically into the sunset. Really, it's just down an alley. So we can talk about our experience with watching the uh, just our general thoughts on the movie. Um, and then maybe I think we should get rid of some uh, – or not get rid of, but I think we should just um, get into some of the criticisms of this movie. And then just kind of go from there after that because there's a lot – so I I had never – I had seen this. It was one of those uh, new releases at the video store um, that I worked at in high school that was like a new release forever because there was one copy and it didn't take up shelf space. It was just always there. And like I had no idea what it was. I didn't know. I thought it was just a woman on the cover. It, it just it some for some reason this this you know the North Dakota and the fact that all that kind of stuff I just wasn't aware of this movie really besides just seeing the the cover and it had a very like um, striking cover but I you know there was I thought it was like some straight to video garbage that you know just gets released and it's gonna I just no one I knew had ever heard of this movie so I will say I didn't hear about it till it was a dissolved movie of the week. Uh, and I was doing that thing where I was trying to watch all the dissolved movies of the week. So it's like five years ago now. And we talked we talked about this on the lure. We talked about this little shop of horrors this month. This was another one of those where the second I put it on about five, ten minutes in, I was like, I love this. Like, I am so excited to keep watching it. I'm already know I'm going to watch it again. Um, you know, you're, you're just excited to like give it five stars and then read all about it and all this other stuff because it just feels like something magical that you were like, how did I miss this for, you know, 10 years or 12 years or whatever it was. Um, and, and then I watched it, uh, like a couple times I bought the, there was no Blu-ray. So I had to buy the old shitty, like new line platinum collection, 
or <laughs> I also had that. Um, so that I could watch it because it was before I was buying stuff digitally, and then uh, eventually did buy the. Was so happy to see an HD version on um, Vudu, and then bought that. But it's been a couple years since I watched it, and um, I had started. You know, I'd started to see when it did pop up with the um, Neil Patrick. Uh, Harris revival. Uh, I think that was in 2016. Uh, that's when I started to to read um, about some of the um, some of the uh, criticisms and uh, some of the more um, other perspectives on how uh, this movie is not. You know, it is a 2001 movie that is has some very incorrect views and and some kind of sloppily ideas about like what it means to be trans and we'll, we'll get into all that stuff so um so i hadn't so it was funny i hadn't seen it since i had read all that stuff and then i kind of caught up on a lot of it uh before watching it so th- the music is still great i've listened i like i have all these songs memorized just because it's been in constant rotation uh, but but watching it again it was like oh yeah i totally see what i had missed before um, but I, I was just so swept up in all of the fun stuff and all of the, the songs and everything else that it wasn't until I kind of sat down with my eyes on looking for it that I kind of noticed it. It is one of the few musicals where I could put this song on any mix and listen to it all day still. Um, I'm, I said before, I'm not a huge fan of the musicals, musical music out of context when it's like the... Uh, big sweeping like Sondheim stuff that's like this is just to fill time or to do this story but we're going to do it in singing I really like when songs from musicals are also like super catchy songs pop songs rock songs whatever it is and this just does that kind of like glam era so well that it's you know just produces some some amazing music and then you know Hedwig as portrayed by John Cameron Mitchell so fucking funny in this movie it like I just I fell in love immediately um and uh and I'm I'm very excited that we're doing it this month and excited to to kind of work through some of the the stuff that uh, the good and the bad of this movie. I must say, I think I saw this in like 2002 or 2003 on Netflix, like disc when they sent discs out, you know? So um, I think, I think everyone's like people who are into musicals and plays have kind of a different, longer, more ongoing history with, with things and like with movies, because Mm -hmm. it's always about like where you're seeing it. So the first thing I saw was the movie and I, I really loved it. Um, It was like, I was into musicals and this was a a capital M musical um, that sounded like rock music, which was great. Like sounded like a real rock band. So I remember uh, I was living in like South Jersey and I begged my mom to drive me to Philadelphia to the Painted Bride Theater production. This was like maybe 2003 or four or something like that. And it was like a true cabaret performance. It was really great. Um, And then it was something that was just there and kind of like my rotation for years down the line when I like started when I was in North Jersey, New York area, I would go to this bar, the Marie's Crisis Bar, the Marie's Crisis Cafe. And it's a musical theater sing-along bar where there's just a piano and a bunch of people crowd around the piano and sing songs. And that that show is a staple there. It's something that, you know, you'll you almost always hear it if you go there any night of the week. But well, if you go the night's. My favorite piano player, Franca, is there. Um, and uh, and then I saw it on Broadway in 2015, I think it was, because I think it was 2014 was Neil Patrick Harris. I saw it with John Cameron Mitchell. This is, oh, okay. And this is pretty interesting. 
I saw it the day. So his his leg was broken. And he did it with a broken leg and they hadn't gotten his replacement yet. And since this was a show that famously had no understudies, they had to get like, I think it was like either Tay Diggs or Michael C. Hall. Somebody had to come back and do it for him. But there was a period where he was doing it with a broken leg. And <laughs> I got to go one of those nights and it was fantastic. Like the choreography was not as exciting i guess but in some ways it was better because he did this whole kind of like there was this like snm kind of thing with him and yitzhak with uh with uh john cameron mitchell mitchell and lena hall uh with like hedwig and yitzhak and it was like yitzhak yitzhak please move my foot you've moved my foot yeah uh, yes yeah, so it, was, it was just this this really amazing kind of I don't know, it was like Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so like I have a really long history with this show. I I love it. It's got problems, but it hit me at that perfect age. And like I will see, you know, I'll, I would see another production of this any day of the week. Uh, I wish I could have seen, you know, uh, I heard Michael C. Hall's was amazing. I wish I could have seen that. But, you know. I, yeah, I didn't realize he had done it, but he seems like a perfect, having just watched like Game Night and seeing him on screen for the first time in a while. Um, I was. He was in Game Night. Totally, he is. Uh, that's maybe a spoiler. Um, oh yeah, no, you're right. He is. That's right. I remember. Now. Oh yeah. So you so kind of shows it. Like uh, it's not really hidden, but he is kind of like a little bit of a surprise. I didn't know he was in the cast, but he's so good in that movie, and I could totally see him playing a very good Hedwig. Uh, my my one of my best friends said that it was like just a, a next level performance. It was supposedly amazing. So yeah. I, uh, I, I kind of wish I'd caught that one, but John Cameron Mitchell with a broken leg was was pretty great. I can't really complain about that. Yeah, he does. I mean, he wrote it, obviously, so I'm sure a lot of the like Catskills type comedy, I'm sure there was a lot of ad-libbing that referenced the broken leg and, and various things on that. So yeah. I'm sure it was a lot of, it was a very and, unique version of the, of the play. And the show, I think, lends itself to improvisation when it's done live quite a bit because it is just Hedwig. It's nobody else. Yeah. So she can, like, as a character, she can kind of go on these tangents that, that that and then just sort of bring it back because it's it's essentially a monologue you know um yeah and they had an excuse for why it was at the belasco theater this big broadway theater they they made up a fake musical that had flopped and you know she had gone down on the producer <laughs> to get to get the space you know <laughs> so they justified why this like this band would be at this gigantic venue. Um, and it's, it's, it's a little, it's a very different thing than the movie. So I think that it's, I think you could definitely see the theatrical DNA in the movie, but the show is bigger, weirdly bigger. I know you'd think it wouldn't be because it's, you know, it's, it's got fewer resources. Technically, you don't have the ability to move through space and time like you do in a movie, but because it's on a stage, it'll, and, and because, you know, Hedwig's not just speaking intimately to a camera at certain points. Uh, it, it gets more room to be a little bit more vaudevillian, a little bit more cabaret style, something that's a little bit like the DNA of the original show, something that's a little bit more um, about the charm of this character and, you know, playing playing a little bit to the people in the in the mezzanine and the balcony. Yeah. I imagine when they were figuring out the leg thing, they were like, fuck 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 is this gonna ruin the show like i can't move yeah <laughs> and we don't have another study like is this gonna ruin the show but for an audience member especially like once you're you're through it you're like i saw something you saw something very very special and very unique to theater 
that like they had to just work around a specific constraint and that's like what makes theater so magical yeah like when they have to work around a, a constraint and they have to just make any scene work or you know it doesn't matter if you're feeling 100 percent that night it doesn't matter if you have a broken leg like if there's no one else to take the stage like you gotta do it like and one interesting thing is the end of the show uh tommy gnosis as, as you might know in the stage production tommy gnosis is played by uh, john cameron mitchell as well as like they, it's a dual part right for the actor who plays hedwig um it's different in the movie they got michael pitt for the movie but in it was a smart move for the movie for them to, to change it out I totally think. i yeah i agree yeah. um but in the show there's a there's a point where Hedwig turns into Tommy Gnosis and there's a platform that rises from the the stage and goes up like one or two stories or something like that. And, you know, they John Cameron Mitchell was still up there and the, the playing Tommy Gnosis with a broken leg and it just rising really, really high with it was like very it felt very dangerous, but it was also like <laughs> really awesome. I mean, that's that's the great thing about live theater. You're like. There's a non-zero percent chance I could see John Cameron Mitchell fall to his death tonight. That's true. That's why I ever, that's the only reason people saw Spider-Man turn off the dark. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I could see a Spider-Man They wanted a die. Faces of Death yeah. musical, and that was the, the best chance they were ever going to get. They're like, I'm either going to see a figurative train wreck or a literal train wreck. So either way, I'm getting my schadenfreude oh, out tonight. Oh, train wreck. Right? Yeah. I believe that would be Starlight Express. Starlight Express. Look, we got a real headwig in the house tonight with these jokes. Uh (laughs) But it's it's a it's a it's a movie that I saw also at a very important point in my life where uh, probably not as important as for some people. But for me, it was very important because it was me figuring out like personal politics, uh, sexual politics in particular. And uh and it was a time when I was trying to figure out, like, what my relationship with society was and all that. And it hit me at that perfect time. I also bought the really ugly-looking DVD transfer that they, they put out by back in the day. Um, it was nice to get to see it a little cleaned up. <laughs> um, but it is still shot on digital. It's a very – it is a movie that looks like it's from its era. Um, but – it, it, it is a movie that I got very attached to. And then a few years after it came out, um, an opportunity came up to work with the producers of it. Um, I There was an internship opportunity. So I went to New York and stayed with my brother for a summer and actually interned at the company that made this. Uh, and Carol and all sorts of other really awesome um, movies that like came out in in a uh, New York indie scene when a lot of other uh, New York indie production companies and New York indie um, producers were shuddering or moving to LA. Um, and uh, so I worked at Killer Films for a little bit. I worked with next to Christine Vachon and Pam Koffler for a summer. And um, it was a really awesome experience because like when you talk to the people that worked there, like this was just like a feather in their cap that they were really proud of. And like they would talk about like going to see the new production of the the musical and stuff because they were like they they saw themselves as like we helped give this this already big thing some extra oxygen. But like they didn't take credit for it. It was John Cameron Mitchell's thing. And so that was all very, very like uh, a cool thing to be able to witness in, in person before I completely abandoned my interest in actually working in film. Uh, but th- that's part of the reason the movie uh, meant so much to me is it was like I 
got to experience it on my own and then I got to meet the pe- some of the people that made it. Summer was over and then I still had all this love for for these these particular people and getting to revisit the movie was uh very powerful for me because it was tapping into uh, an, a, a certain kind of nostalgia, which was nostalgia at a, at a time in my life where I was like changing and becoming a, a new person that like gave a shit about social issues. This was one of the movies that I, that changed my perspective on the world. So getting to do it this month is, is a perfect capper for the month. And it doesn't feel like Little Shop of Horrors. And it doesn't feel like Tokyo Tribe, but it's, it's um, punk and vital in its own way, even 16 years later or whatever. That's great. I did not know any of that. Um, I definitely feel like out of uh, the three of us, my story is wildly uninteresting in that I saw it a few <laughs> years ago and really liked it. Uh, I, it's, it's great that both of you guys uh, have such a personal connection uh, to this in, uh, you know, Peter, I guess, I don't know, helping to be a gaffer on the movie. I was only half paying attention. Uh, and then, <laughs> no, I didn't work on the movie. That would have been like uh, 10 years earlier. Um, I'm, I'm just kidding. This is a defense mechanism, Peter. Um, oh, OK. Got it. OK. Uh, you know, you were you were whatever the janitor at the at the film store where they made it, <laughs> whatever. Uh, no, it was just like a no, fun, it was a fun little summer opportunity where we got yeah, to meet no, some cool people and that's see the so process. awesome. Um, and I definitely had a lot of those movies too. Um, you know, again, definitely growing up in a very conservative city, um, and I. Um, and I, especially in high school and about like what kind of person I was going to be. Um, and I could definitely sing, I, I, like I said, I really wish I would have discovered this earlier. Cause I think I would have, I mean, loved it as much as I love, you know, love the Rocky Horror Picture Show and a lot of these other things I kind of discovered in high school. And I don't, this just totally missed my radar and, um, so glad we're doing it for the show though, just because yeah, it is. It's one of my favorites. Well, I think we're going to have a lot of very positive stuff to say. Let's 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 talk about some of the criticisms of this movie first. Um, I mean, I do want to first say like what is good about this from from a, like from kind of like that trans perspective. I, I I should say we're not speaking completely through lived experience, and so it's you know it's important to listen to voices that aren't us about this. So you know we do have to acknowledge that we might have a blind spot. I think all three of us talking about mm-hmm. this movie in general. Um, yes. And that's important to admit. Um, one of the things I like about this movie is the way it's kind of about the way if you're somebody who's marginalized, the way things are taken from you and the way people, you know, take away your culture. Uh, like Tommy Gnosis is this straight white boy stealing the culture from somebody uh, from from Hedwig. Uh, you have the, the, the army official, this person who represents the U.S. military taking from uh, East Berlin, taking from a, a poorer country and then taking this person, a part of this person. It's that's another thing about this film is that the transition Hedwig goes through is coerced. So it's hard to even call Hedwig a trans character completely because you're, you know, it is something where it's like, you know, she goes by she pronouns, but it's also something that you're not completely certain was her decision. It was done through an act of abuse. Yeah. That's how she got to where she was. But then she still took on that persona after and that she, but she had never, she had never identified as that before, and only yes. did that because, like, one of the things I read was like it almost speaks more to how fucked up the East Germans were at that time than um, the idea that she, that um, she had always identified that way. Instead, she kind of 
You know, it is a little bit of a, a movie about someone rolling with the punches of all this stuff in their lives. And like and that's that's kind of what what she did here. And that's why I think um, that the the Midnight Radio song and where that kind of goes, that's where a lot of the a lot of the criticism um, I think comes from. Do you think I, is that I, right? Well, I also will say the the title okay. of the film has is a problem because it's already focusing on this character's genitals, right? And I yeah. think that that's something that you know, like this is a problem when there's so few stories from the trans perspective. Is that when something comes oh, yeah. out, especially from a cis perspective, um, it has to represent all these things. But even without that, even the fact that it wasn't one of the only trans films to come out in two thousand one, whatever. Um, it's still a movie that is, you know, already putting like it's there's already a gaze there. You know, there's already the obsession with the the penis or the vagina or whatever is down there. You know, like there's always this thought about that. And that's that's a trope that needs to die, you know, um, and especially yeah. coming from a cis writer. I you know, if this was somebody who actually lived this experience, I'd be much more forgiving of that sort of thing. Um so, you know, that that is one of the huge things. And then it's also like all cis actors involved, you know, it's it's um, it's, you know, assist staff. It's, it, it's kind of like, I think the DNA of this film is drag. And I think that the, yeah. the stuff that is, you know, about trans issues, the movie kind of flops a lot of, you know? Well, and it, and, and, and it's the criticism of, um, even the rolling with the punches stuff, it's, well, okay, well, I guess because the surgery happened, this botch, um, that I guess I'll be a, be a, be a, live as a woman now, mm -hmm. which implies that there's, there's a deciding factor into whether someone is trans or not, which kind of reinforces one of the more harmful stereotypes of being trans, that it's a, it's a choice you can make. Yeah. And, um, and that's the key that's difference cool. between drag and trans is that yeah. drag is a performance, you know? I we could all be in, we be in drag, you know. We 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 could all put on wigs and go on RuPaul's Drag Race, you know. That's drag. That's a performance of society's idea of a straight woman, maybe. But trans and cis are identities. It's who you are. It's something that you yes. you are, whether you look like it or not. You know, yeah. you could be trans and look and and look like uh, I don't know the guy from office space who with the stapler you know like it, there's no it doesn't matter who you look like it's about who you are it's tough because it's like the crux of the movie is the thing that's the problem with it and if you take that out and make it about somebody who's just in drag you remove that sensational element of it i think you've still got sensational songs you've got sensational performance you've got a lot of gr great ideas in there and this one thing is just it's fucking irritating and it's it's problematic as hell uh and you know it's a it is an issue, and that's and that kind of leads into the the ending part, which gets a lot of criticism, um, which is there's this idea that he's kind of like stopping to pretend to live as a woman and accept who he is, which is where a lot of the stuff that I was reading before this episode was this is like the worst harmful stereotypes of what it means to be trans which is i need to stop pretending and be be who i actually am which is uh in quotes of course a man and um and he does the same thing to um to his partner too by taking off um taking off his like uh you know beard and and uh male identity at that moment and then she becomes like this you know uh this 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 more this this woman and it's like the you can stop lying and stop pretending and that was yeah and and it seems to be there is a little bit of debate whether he's trying to imply that like now now that i'm like i'm post-gender 
like now you can just be whoever and stuff like that. And then there's the discussion about, no, it's it's clearly like stop that that trans is almost um, something that people do to hide from their identity, or at least that's what a lot of people walk away from in this movie thinking. Hadwig is not not even just becoming uh, who she was when she was, uh, you know, a, a child in East Berlin. Hedwig is almost taking in absorbing Tommy Gnosis and like taking his identity. Mm-hmm. So it gets it gets very sticky with like the whole identity discussion because you're like is what is the purpose of that act is is the purpose of that act to take back this identity that she thinks was stolen from her is the purpose to move to the next stage in in her evolution where sort of post-gender um she decides i you know i'm a woman but i don't identify as this there's there's so little commentary within the film on the ending that it's kind of hard to place yeah. what it's saying but i've also seen short bus i understand like what perspective he's coming from uh, sort of like pro sex humanist perspective on sex so i get that he's coming from it from a, a, a positive perspective but it's so hard uh, it's, here's the thing, though, is that I th- okay? So like, people talk about all this. I'm like, oh, this movie. If it had come out in 2018, everyone would have gone crazy about it. Well, I mean, the diff. Well, think about why that is. Like, it's the internet, right? But what does really the internet represent? It represents people not having a barrier, voices that were once marginalized, not having yep. the ability to speak, not having like an outlet and now the internet gives them that outlet and so people want to complain about oh you're going back and relitigating the past well you're not relitigating the past you're litigating the past for the first time (laughs) because nobody was talking about these things in 2001 or 1999 when the play was out or whatever you know like there were voices out there that were saying these things but they weren't getting broadcasted they were not getting promoted and so i think it's really important to hold these films to a high standard look we're going to talk about what we love about this musical you know you can like a thing about something and not like another thing about it but like i think you have to acknowledge both otherwise you're not you're if you're not going to going to explore the complexity of this film and what it represents within our culture you're doing a disservice to the film itself yeah and that's kind of the mission statement of our of our podcast in general we end up because a lot of the movies we do we end up having that conversation a lot and it is important to have it every time i never want to get to the point where we're just going triumph of the will was good stop talking about it yeah it, it, it Exactly. And you know what? You're right. As we're we're not the people that are going to be able to render and we shouldn't that are going to render the verdict on whether this is problematic, offensive or any of those sort of like that's not for us to decide at the end of the day. Right. There there are people that are. And I again, I, I loved reading. I'm going to we'll have a couple links that were kind of sharing their complicated perspective and where they feel like the movie is great. But the movie also has a lot of issues that um have that are reinforcing stereotypes that have been, you know, everything from just general negative to like dangerous for the trans community. Uh, and, and, and I think and I think the movie's point of you should be who you are and not let society tell you that X is OK and Y is not is is and Y is wrong or anything like that is a great message. And they, they do that. They 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 that is the point of the movie. The problem, of course, in the actual context of the movie and why it, it gets, I think, some rightful criticism, especially through the prism of 2018, is that the way they demonstrate that is by, again, the 
the implication that they should stop pretending to be um, someone they're not, which in this case is like a woman and a man, respectively. One aspect about the, uh, you know, the, the fact that this is an older movie and some people are like, well, they made it in 2001, whatever, because that's not something I'm trying to say here is just like, well, let it go. We didn't have any, you know, trans movies on this stage in this in this level of distribution back then. Not trying to say that. focused on Bush doing the 9-11. We, the, Bush was hardcore doing a lot of 9-11 at the time. So we were really focused on that. Um <laughs> Every gain, every progressive gain with having – with treating any other, uh, any color, any gender, any uh, gender identity, like anything, every one of those gains can be swept away in years, weeks, months, whatever. And they're paltry gains too. Like the gains are – when you look at it, they're they're fairly paltry. I mean not completely like safety has gotten better since the 60s. Cops are not beating the shit out of people who go to gay club – gay bars and like kicking them out. Uh, but you know, it's – it's still not nearly where it needs to be. So like yes. these these paltry yeah. gains can still be taken away. Yeah. Yes. And it, one of the big examples I like to name is uh, when you see the book burnings in Nazi Germany, one of the big uh, one of the big book burnings that they always show footage of in, in your history textbooks when you're in junior high is actually of a book burning on gender studies and particularly progressive leaning uh, gender studies, they were talking about trans issues and Hitler was burning these books in the street to like say like, no, we're returning to this gender normative values and like. Yeah, Berlin was great in the 30s other than like the Nazis, like the, the queer community <laughs> in Berlin was fucking popping. You guys did a musical that I really loved last year uh, during musical May called Cabaret. <laughs> it yes. kind of gets into it. Oh, you, you didn't like that? <laughs> no, I liked it. It was that was we consider that our worst episode because we had to delay recording. So we were two weeks removed from watching the movie and I had to catch a plane, plane at five in the morning. And I think you were sick, Peter. So yeah, it, we, we consider that our, our worst episode. Episode from uh, from that perspective, but uh, I think we were both generally positive on the movie. Yeah. Well, if you ever right do now. all that jazz, so, you got to call me, okay? Because I've got that's what we we're say. supposed to do. And it is important to give this movie a little bit of shit for the implications that it makes. It never outright says trans people are fake. They're they're not actually you know they're not they're not actually women. Like it, it never says anything like that. It's just that it makes implications that I think it was important. Doesn't it, it, say it, but it does sing it a little bit in. <laughs> In Midnight Radio. <laughs> it's not as inclusive as it might imply and the general demeanor of the film might imply. It does It does remind me so much of a lot of like those criticisms of, of history textbooks, which kind of – the reason that a lot of people think that you know things just keep getting better and we're always living in the best time is because like the way we were taught history, especially in like elementary school through high school, is this like all the mistakes are in the past and eventually like – America or whatever country you're studying just learns to be better, like the way that probably most of our sanitized history books like portrayed slavery as something all of a sudden America realized, oh, this is wrong. We should not be doing this. Let's be promise to be better from now on. Like and that's how like all of these things when they cover like these horrible atrocities throughout like our history, they're kind of covered as things uh that could never happen today or any like or that have been completely wiped out of any sort of um, even like repercussions of those moments because literally 
the way it's portrayed is literally like everyone in America all of a sudden going, well, that was just silly. We should not have been doing any of that. And that's and because we we were kind of like almost like, um, you know, given that kind of propaganda that America eventually always does the right thing, that, that we still think that whatever like era we're living in is like, um, you know, some version of uh, – the the best version that we can be where i mean i think trump disabusive of of the notion of any well, like thanks. kind of you know moral authority we ever thought we had i have you seen um i am not your negro yeah i have one of the things yeah fantastic. about james baldwin yeah. Yeah. yeah one of the things i really liked about that was the way it is kind of an intersectional approach to that sort of thing where he asked the question like why did we need the n-word in the first place why did this country need that and it's thinking about sort of what the root of this is is you know thinking about it not just in terms of racism but racism linked to capitalism and and linked to colonialism and all of these yeah. other things that are part of this complex web and like well why why are we not taught that this is one giant thing where certain people have just won by dominating other people it's because the people who write the textbooks are the people who won ultimately and it's like it's a cliche but it's true you know like we're not taught colonialism because if we were taught that we'd have to look at our all the things we have around us and question why it's there why it exists why we have so much while so many have so little you know and it's why the people that we colonized are always portrayed as like violent aggressors who like made the first move and we maybe we overreacted a little but we were just trying to be pleasant like that really is the story of like the indigenous people of America is like they were violent savage and warlike and all those other like horrible descriptors and we just we just were trying to defend ourselves and maybe we maybe we went too far but now we all worked it out and that's like that's you know go go down the list but yeah you know, re- of all that stuff not to sidetrack too much but to anyone listening to this if you find that movie i'm not your negro if you thought that was interesting i highly recommend a documentary it's a chilean doc called the pearl button and it goes into a lot of this thing so beautifully so well could not recommend it enough I, I have not seen it. Uh, is it available on any streaming services? I don't know if it's available streaming. I know it is on DVD. Uh, it's you know it's a it's a director who's well known in Chile, so it, it is available to get somehow. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's get into let's get into some of the stuff that we like. Um, I would be remiss to not say that my favorite thing about this movie is the music. Um, I think Wig in a Box, Angry uh, Angry Inch, and um, I'm missing a huge one here. Oh, Origin of Love are, you know, not just three of my favorite musical songs, but if I had to do a top 250 songs of all time, at least two of those would end up on it. They are the type of song, and we talked about this a lot last week with Little Shop of Horrors, where as as you're listening to it and as you're experiencing it, you're already like hit and pause to download the song the album off of iTunes because it's an it's an immediate hit in your brain where you're like okay I need to listen to this immediately the second this movie's over and I kind of want to rewind that sequence I just saw because the songs are so catchy and the reason why I think they're more successful than just being like these amazing glam rock musical songs is they do something that's very tough which is they are great catchy songs which and you could say, well, they're just meant to be performed to the audience, but they still work as like a typical expository musical song where they're still giving you information and telling the audience what they need to know, which is like the classic what a musical does in their musical numbers. And this one does it 
and it doesn't, you know, in the same way expository dialogue can sometimes be clunky and difficult to get across, but it does it this amazing way where it does not take away from the music. And I think that's a really tough tightrope that this thing, that this, that this movie nails on every single song. Yeah. And it's also, uh, the music is really good at, I think it doesn't go too far with a lot of musicals will go into the story of the show, but because this is, it doesn't really have a proper story. It's, it's able to, you know, the expository stuff is like, it's there, but it's, it's a lot of it's thematic, you know? Um, yeah. And it's like backing up how the character feels, which is what any good song should do really. Like whether it's in a musical or not. But it really, I mean, a lot of times the songs are just recounting plot. Mm. And but and so that's where, you know, when I had some like um, mild criticism of like Sondheim musicals and, and some of those more traditional musicals, a lot of times when they're oh. plot or feelings. <laughs> um, you care you know, to care to give me any of those criticisms to my face? No, I'm teasing. <laughs> I didn't write those musicals, but he's my fave. He's my favorite living artist. <laughs> so sorry. It's OK. Um, I and it's not that I don't like the songs, but I think sometimes those songs don't exist well outside of the musicals because it is a lot of narrative oh. devices that you need for those. That's, sure, that's like I mean to me that's like saying uh, you know a, a, a like a a scene in or like a sentence in a book doesn't work outside yeah. the book. It's you know it's it's of a whole. Yeah, but like in some musicals. All the songs are like a quote from a book that you can say out of context, and it's just a really well-written thought that gets repeated over and over. That's actually – that's something that – especially older musicals, when they were on the radio more, that was something that was really important for early musicals. That's why they sounded like pop music at the time. They were pop music at the time. And I think yep. that that's the thing that Sondheim did differently, which was you know not worrying about making a song that's going to be a breakaway pop hit. So he only had yeah. one send in the clowns and yet he's still really beloved, you know, because he was doing something that was a little different. This one, I think, works because it sounds like a rock album. You know what I mean? It does. But still somehow manage all that. Like I said, but it still manages to get all that plot out to you, mm -hmm. which can be difficult when you're also trying to write a catchy song. Yeah. Yeah. You could listen to this album as an album and not even get a good sense that it was attached to a musical. Um, partially because of how the orchestration is is made and it's just not very very few of the songs sound like a traditional musical kind of thing but the way that it propulsively tells story is you can't get away from the fact that that's a musical thing and i really love i really love how um it it's not afraid also to do like a sort of like the slideshow presentation with with parts of uh hedwig's history um, yeah mm -hmm. And, and sort of run away, like, just be like, this isn't really like a song song, but it's just like, a, we'll have like a thrumming beat behind um, this little flashback scene. For instance, a lot of these scenes of, of Hedwig's childhood don't really have like a song and dance number because John Cameron Mitchell is doing those, not the kid. It's the the kid is like listening to music while he's in an oven, so his mom his mom doesn't want him to uh, make noise in the apartment, so he has to lay inside the oven and listen to his radio. He's listening to Anne Marie, who is actually a Canadian working in the American idiom, and David Bowie, who is an, actually an idiom working in America and Canada. <laughs> and the song Freaks. There's a lot of really really good 
just funny wordplay mm-hmm. in that same sequence there's a throwaway joke where he's talking about a mother got a job uh teaching sculpture to limbless children <laughs> it's like <laughs> my favorite joke in the whole movie maybe because it's just it's just so perfect it, it paints a picture but like it is a throwaway joke it doesn't matter to the rest of the movie she, she also has a, a very funny line about like they threw tomatoes at me, so I made a salad. Like that, that's, <laughs> yeah, th- that's, that's a joke that is very informative of what the character is if you haven't been paying attention to the songs. Well, that's – yeah, that's what's great is that it's, it accomplishes it not just through the songs, which are great, but all those little like vaudevillian uh, Catskill comic touches where she's – where she still is going through all the jokes throughout it. And it's especially funny because not only are the jokes cleverly written and stuff like that, but the the reaction shot for every joke is like a very disinterested Chili's patron. Yeah. And that only adds to how funny everything that's happening is. Um, and I also love just from a character perspective, like she never changes her act to fit the – the environment that she's in like if anything she's like look i'm just gonna keep doing i'm gonna have my costumes i'm gonna have my pageantry i'm gonna do all of this stuff and i know that you know the 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 fight that kind of breaks out at the end of the angry inch song like it is if that's what happens that's what happens but like this is my way to express my art and this is the environment I'm stuck with. I'm not going to tone it down even one iota for someone else. Also, fun fact about this. All the singing in this movie was live, was done live on the set, apparently. And so in those scenes, like that's actually that's actually uh, John Cameron Mitchell singing into the and Miriam Shore singing into the microphones. That's all like live that we're seeing. Kind of like, um, yeah, like what was that? Les Miserables did that and wouldn't shut up about it. In the advertising. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, they they were, I think they pre-recorded all of the um, mm-hmm. the actual instrumentals, and then um, John Cameron Mitchell could sing over it for the the scene to capture a sense of live energy. Um, obviously, that's an approach that greatly benefits the director um, and his way of working. But it works out. Any artificiality in the movie is actually feel, it feels like a stage production artificiality where it's just kind of communicating a story to you. It's not really about um, saying like this world is just one big fake facade or something. It's not some sort of cynical pro- uh, appropriation to it. It's it's it wants to be real in its emotion. It, it wants to be real in how it presents the music to you and the yeah. stories and the songs and the characters. And it kind of goes back to the whole, like this movie is kind of a drag movie thing in the sense of like, you know, you're starting Eastern Europe and it looks like Eastern European drag. There's like the blue tint to it. Like it doesn't, yes. it's like, it's just hilariously poor, you know? And just like the idea of like the taste of gummy bears, uh, like, the taste of power that sweet complicated confection like that's, <laughs> it's so over the top everything about it and, and like or just the trailer park you know where they sing when we get a box just and it, of course yeah. it pops up and turns into a stage because it's always been a stage everything has been a stage it's you know it's a perf- it's the performative idea of east berlin of midwestern america of uh, of all of these different places it's it's not aiming for realism you know let me, let me also just point out real quick the my favorite gag in the movie or moment is when um, 
we return to the trailer park and the wall of the trailer just pops open and becomes a stage. Yeah. During Wig in a Box. Yeah. It's so great. It's it's one of my favorite things ever. Um, also, I have to ask, just getting a pulse of the room, did you sing along? Yeah. I mean, you mean the first time or every subsequent time when they do the sing along? Yeah, with the little bouncing note. Did you guys sing along? I think I think I did the first. Yesterday time. I yeah. was diligently taking notes, and yes, of course I still sung along. How do you not do that? <laughs> <laughs> it's I don't need the sing along words anymore. Yeah, all these people are staring at you, and you're just like, yeah, obviously, obviously I'm singing along. Yeah. yeah, I wish it went on longer than just that one shot. It's yeah. also nice to see Yitzhak smile in the movie, and that's like the one song where like I yeah. I also like that. <laughs> That is like such a fantasy thing, which is like you're down on the dumps. Like who doesn't want to just have their their kind of like drab world turn into like their surroundings at, at in a low moment, like a breakup moment, like just turn into a stage with lights on it and have a band follow you around and like sing you songs. And you're the star and they make you up. They put makeup on you. It's like every like little queer boys fantasy of like, yeah, this is how I'm going to get over this. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to turn into a musical. I think it's a human emotion, though, that like everybody can relate to, mm-hmm. I- I- at least in minimal. Your suffering feels so pathetic and small when you're like stuck in a quiet room with it. And you want the walls of the room to explode out and become and you want your, your suffering and your, your tragedy to become somehow a great story, a, a great tale, a, mm-hmm. a, a big production. Like you, you somehow you want it to have meaning and matter is, is really the, the, the story at the end of the day. There's nothing more, I think, relatable than this idea of like uprooting your life or doing some major change to your life that ends up feeling like it's for nothing, right? That's what happens to her in that moment. Greetings from Yugoslavia. It, yeah, where she, she – had a botch surgery to be with a man who then left. And the reason she had the botch surgery was to get out of a country that she no longer had to escape from, like yeah. watching – she's watching the news and all that stuff. So that feeling, I mean, we probably all had a, a version of that like, wait, why did I do all that stuff? Now I feel like I have nothing. And so that the, – the catharsis in that song where she – not only are we seeing the – everything turn into a stage, but – that part of the song that always gets me every time and makes me want to like jump out of my chair is the, uh, you know, the, I'm never going back. Like, and the guitar really hits mm-hmm. and then the do, do, do start. And that like, that is everything of that moment is such an emotional expression of like what you want to do when you have those, your own moments of like, just get on the rooftops of a, your house and do a primal scream or something like that. And like, that is exactly what's going on in that moment and it is just so the feeling that she's in at that moment and like the catharsis that she achieves at the by the end of that song is just so so resonant uh to to myself yeah the songs are super cathartic especially like it's you've got that song as like the perfect sad song that's going to like lift you up and of course i used to play that like and sing at the top of my lungs whenever i was feeling sad yeah. but you also have songs like exquisite corpse or like of course the end of angry inch that have this like fucking angry fuck you energy to it uh which is again also really cathartic um and then also there's just like a country song in there, which is great. Like I, I had, yeah. I'd completely forgotten that Sugar Daddy was a country song because I, I was so used to the most recent recording of it, which like plays it as kind of like a, a grungier kind of like post, post-punk kind of song. Um, not post-punk, what would it be? Like more garage, like, like white stripesy kind of, I guess. Um, 
I'm messing up my genres uh, really badly here. Um, there's too many genres. It's like Latin beat. Yeah, and it's like, but it's it's like this is so the soundtrack is just so full of songs yeah. that you want to just sing from the top of your lungs at like really emotional moments in your life, which is what every musical theater fan really just wants. Is yeah. is that kind of is, thing? Yeah, everyone wants. Yeah, who doesn't want their? I mean, that's why Ben that's Folds why is I so loved want... by musical theater fans. <laughs> yeah, not me. Everyone but... just kind of wants. <laughs> there uh but everyone just kind of wants that moment of hey what if i just started singing and belting out a song and then other people did like that is a very common fantasy i think of people who like musicals or been involved in musical theater is like it it does feel it's why like when you're sad when you're angry i mean this is this is a cliche but like why music is so important to like you know get over sad moments and help you experience happy moments and all these other things because it just it has this kind of power over you that like other mediums of art um don't so obviously if you're a musical theater fan that idea of like it's why i've always loved uh, david i don't know your thoughts on this like there's nothing i like more and even though it's been done more and more in the last like decade but it gets me every time i love it when non-musicals have a sudden like musical sequence in them whether they're good movies or bad movies like i love the little musical sequence in 500 days of summer which is a, not a great movie but like that moment where he's in love and then starts dancing around to um hall and oats who won't want that moment oh yeah life? that was that's a wonderful <laughs> falling in love with somebody you feel like you're the first person ever to do it there's like something so interesting about the minutiae of falling in love when in reality it's like yeah i mean this is kind of what everyone does right uh, that's that that is like one of the things that musicals do well and is capturing emotions that like rationally examined or like well i mean yeah it's like you can talk yourself down off the cliff like you're like but in musicals you can really blow up those emotions and like examine them and form like a community with people and i think yeah. that i think that that's why um humanism and you know uh sexual positivity fits so well in a uh, musical format oh another one wise up in uh magnolia oh yeah that's a really great I mean, one th there's literally not one i can if you were to name I'm sure there's a list somewhere we could find on Letterboxd, like movies with yeah. non-musicals with a musical sequence. I guarantee every single one that I've seen, I would say like that. Like Holy that Motors. Oh, yeah. With that the was accordions. the one I was thinking of, too. The, with the breakdown in the middle of the uh, accordion. Yeah. Um, yeah. It I broke mean, my brain. That was amazing. I, I was just I, I was like, wait, hold on. This movie can do that also? <laughs> That's what um, movies do. It's, what, it's every movie, that movie. But it, but it is kind of like – I always – I'm a big fan of maximal, maximal. Oh my gosh, maximalism, max maximalism in movies, mm -hmm. uh, and so I I never have a problem with movies like yeah, do a musical sequence, do this, like go over the top. It's why we did stuff like uh, when we've done like Bug Nuts Month and like Goke. I, I say it all the time on this podcast, like just do whatever crazy thing is on your mind in the movie. Like it's a movie. I I appreciate my like realistic grounded movies too, but I. 
I appreciate them, and I some of them are my favorites. But there's never a movie that does that goes for broke or has like moments of going for broke, whether it's a musical sequence or something else unexpected, where I've ever been like, "Oh, can you just keep it grounded?" I love when movies explode like that. Yeah. It's like why it's why you have movies sometimes. I think to be able to do whatever uh, whatever the writer and the director wants to do, you're like you're. You're unlimited in your app. Look, some of my best friends are gr- grounded, realistic movies, but <laughs> but let's face it, uh, singing Justin Timberlake singing The Killers in Southland Tales yeah. is better than John Cassavetes, than anything John Cassavetes ever did. All right? <laughs> I, I've only seen, I haven't I've only seen, seen a John faces, but sure. <laughs> I haven't seen um, a single one, but just trust me on that. <laughs> also, one of our tenets on this show is that uh, subtlety, uh, while valuable, is one of the most overrated values for a, a film to have. That the idea that you need to uh, take anything that you want to say and like bury it like below the surface like just deep enough that people can feel smart when they find it is like kind of something where like isn't this a little elitist that like you need your subtext out there like aren't people just isn't isn't this supposed to be a form of expression like we can have people just say how they feel as long as it's artful i think that it's like you you've got to have both like i mean you don't have to have both you've got to have one you have to have like things make sense on an emotional level to people and if like a human being who's not trained in media studies or like who hasn't read gene baudillard or like walter benjamin can't like figure out what your movie's about like you're not actually making a movie about people you're making a movie about like that's not for everyone right like that's fine i guess but like isn't it better when it's both of those things like you can have those like multiple subtextual layers but like still the emotion in somebody's face in a movie or or something is always going to be yeah just that's something that everyone can just connect to and you you know you don't have to like i I, i'm I'm with you on that although i do think that this song that like this show actually weirdly enough it's got this sort of I think I mentioned this earlier it's got this expansive it's a film it's got this expansive thing that the 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 stage show doesn't have because the stage show is just in the location you're in right and this goes all over the world this goes all over the place all over the country all these different locations the production design is beautiful but because the camera can go inches away from John Cameron Mitchell's face from Hedwig's face we can suddenly like look in it feels more boxed in it, it doesn't feel boxed in it feels subtle it feels like it feels like we're being like like we're reading a diary in some ways so there's it's so intimate yeah Yeah. it's incredibly intimate the jokes are whispered at certain points you know that's like the scene in the oven for instance that is very different than how it plays on the stage and they're both played beautifully but you know within their respective mediums and speaking of cabaret it's something that musicals like Cabaret do really well and very few musicals do well. Like you look at um, you look at like Hello, Dolly. I love the show Hello, Dolly, but the movie version of Hello, Dolly just basically put it on on film. And it's not compelling because it doesn't it's not it's not thinking about film language and what film can do really well. Right. I mean, that's the problem with a lot of stage to screen musical. Adaptions, yeah, exactly. Right? It's like, why am I watching this as a movie like it? You didn't think it through like it's. And I think that I, I know a lot of musical theater fans who get really stuck on like sort of the changes made to things like Cabaret or to Hedwig or, you know, to uh, to Sweeney Todd. But like, I think those are all excellent examples of, you know, understanding the the um, understanding the medium and the language of, of what you're filming. I think it's a big problem with the producers. The producers was just basically a carbon copy of the of the stage show. But it was directed by somebody who who I don't think had ever made a, a, a feature like a film and you could tell because it's yeah. just like the colors off and there's things that are it just 
the jokes that make sense on the stage don't make sense in the film. And like, this is a musical that I think they really did consider it as a film and thought about like, how, how are we going to tell the story, retell the story for a different audience? And how is everything that we say going to be translate, like received from this audience? That's, you know, going to be, it's, it's going to be much more intimate. You know, you're much closer to the performer in a way. Well, and even when they go outside of the, the kind of like Chili's, um, set that we see a lot in this movie redressed like their two other ones are so funny like the ninth stage at the menses festival with the one person and they like come here just set we're just gonna talk like this that's a great gag and then um the ice cream shop with just all the ferns for no reason like even they they just had this eye for like how how you Again, I've never seen the stage show, but I have to imagine a lot of that production design that's so fantastic and, like, where they move some of the set stuff, um, like, they 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 had a sense of how to, like, increase the – both, the like, the humor and a little bit of the patheticness of the locations that they have to perform at by, like, look, we don't have a huge budget and we are using the same set, but when we go outside of it, like, that's going to be an amazing moment, too. It doesn't feel constrained by budget or anything to me. Um, it doesn't feel uh, hemmed in by the fact that it is an, an adaptation of a, of a musical, um, which, as David very succinctly pointed out, can often feel uh, very, very limiting um, to these these productions. And John Cameron, John Cameron Mitchell is like, I'm making a movie. So he made a fucking movie. No part of it feels small to me. Uh, it feels like it's yeah. just the right size, which is um, what, kind of what you want movies to feel like. You kind of want movies to feel like they, they filled their container and maybe a little bit extra. You're not watching like, man, if I had a bigger budget, <laughs> this would have looked great. Like you're watching the, a movie that he made for this particular production. I love it. I think Little Shop did that really well, too, because that's like, you know, that's on a set, clearly, like, but it's on a set that looks like it could be in a 50s movie, like a 50s horror movie, so. Yeah, it doesn't look like they they weren't cutting corners in a way that you could tell. The, the It's a small drama, and they made a nice small set for yeah. it that, that, that just functions. They're not striving for realism, you know? I think that's, yes. that's something Into the Woods yeah. did that was really bad, which was it was like... It was, you know, it was trying to be this like modern realistic movie. Again, all the blue tinting. I ugh, this movie is with the color correction. They need to like cool it a little bit. Um, <laughs> it was cool in two thousand two. It's not really cool anymore. Yeah, exactly. You're not all David Fincher. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pretty like one of my favorite movies is Blade Two, and one of the most regret- regrettable things about it is that they did a lot of post Fight Club color correction on it, <laughs> where like certain scenes just look like you peed on the frames, and you're like, why, why, why was this just what we all agreed on? Like Swordfish, do you guys remember the movie Swordfish? I remember Access Hollywood talking about how much Halle Berry got paid to be topless. <laughs> and that's all the tv i had to watch yeah i mean it's like <laughs> why did you watch so many were you, movies were you David? homesick yeah. <laughs> um i didn't want to watch that so Seinfeld we rerun again yeah i definitely feel like we could talk about this movie for a long time but uh, let's get to some moments that we haven't got a chance to talk about that we really want to make sure we highlight um i have two very quick ones uh my favorite joke of the movie is the did you sing the cyrus uh, that is such a good joke <laughs> when Tommy Nosis steals the song 
uh, and the line is Osiris, but obviously he doesn't know what Osiris is. Yeah. So as he's listening to the CD, uh, that's such a great joke. Every stupid and then, Tommy Gnosis, Tommy Speck thing is like the funniest. Yeah. yeah. Um, Basic bitch boy. Yes. <laughs> um, and I do think there's something really charming and cute about the idea that that these songs in like the mid 90s were the number one MTV hits and a worldwide superstar like like I don't have any problems with the magical realism and stuff like that but there is something kind of charming about this idea like that um Wicked Town would be the biggest MTV hit in the like mid 90s when this is supposed to take place. Who is Tommy so. Gnosis like modeled after? Who do you think? I I see that's what I was like it, like I think you could have made a case for this if this was like set in the 70s or 80s, but there is something really funny about it being still in the 90s and this idea of it's like, like this, Creed. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> With like the cross over his forehead and like the shirtlessness. But they weren't big in 1990s. Little Goo Goo Dolls, yeah. right? A little it's, bit. It is a parody this, of that kind of thing. The hair is a hundred percent Goo Goo Dolls. This movie does, in some ways, remind me a lot of Velvet Goldmine, where there's sort of like uh, you know these a David Bowie stand-in and an Iggy Pop stand-in, um, and it's sort of like going through rock history and glam history, but. It's not – I don't think it's doing that thing where you're like, oh, this is supposed to be this person. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think that it's supposed to be – that the iconography of the cross could maybe mean, yeah, it was like a creed or somebody that was, you know, just kind of lifting that angsty stuff and reappropriating it for the mainstream. He does look kind of like Billy Corgan. The look is like completely the contrivance, like the whole thing of like the the image is a contrivance. And then the songs are great because they're written by Hedwig, you know? Yeah. So yes. it really is a, a full, full on like there's there's not a piece of Tommy, the real Tommy Gnosis in any of the performances or the music. Yeah. It's like a capitalist construction of Tommy Gnosis that was created by Hedwig with just like the talent stuff being taken, from, like you know, the skill based stuff being taken from uh, from Hedwig. Speaking of which, that that scene where Tommy leaves Hedwig was one of my other things I wanted to make sure I mentioned the way they just stay on that still shot is such a heartbreaking moment in this movie that feels like a theatrical moment in a sense like how you're you're trapped in this room with this dissolving union um and you have to sit there in the in these feelings with them yeah it's tough every time i watch it uh, the look on hedwig's uh face she slowly realizes what's going to need to happen but then it just stays on that still shot of the two staring at each other is like just a just a it gets me every time it's just a you you want that moment to be over so bad um and they stay on it for the perfect amount of time that you get uncomfortable and and then by the time it's done you're almost like shit because then it gets even worse for you know for Hedwig for a little bit um but the the it's just kind of that that perfect length of this this little quiet moment that and the facial expressions just tells you everything everything you need to know and yeah it's like you're right peter it's like you're in the room and you're just like okay please tell a joke please tell one of your cutting remarks i need something to cut this this moment um but that central tragedy needs to be um, yeah rough and both people need to come out looking kind of bad out of it um 
Oh yeah, it's. I mean, it's a hundred percent effective at what it's doing. But that's yeah. that's why it's effective because you would give anything for a for a dumb remark at that moment. Yeah, to like or someone to come out looking like a hero and someone yep. to come out. It's it's, but it doesn't work that way. In the real life doesn't work that way, and that's why it's such an intimate, rough moment, and it cuts through all of the glitz and the glamour that that Hedwig puts into uh, her stage production. Oh, we didn't talk about the fucking how much animation is in this movie. Mm. It, there's a lot of, of animation in the slideshows and it's like pretty decent looking for the budget that they have. Um, it's 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 very simple, but it, it feels like it would be something that's like attainable. Hedwig could have done it herself or <laughs> found somebody that, you know, could could put this together. It's it's not like the take on me music video or something where it's like, well, so you just had like half a million dollars sitting around. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Hedwig animates a bunch of Legos like the fell in love with the girl. <laughs> <laughs> it's also like um it's it's that well first of all i think it's got it shares this in common with short bus the follow-up which also had animation it feels very much of a piece with like the new york scene that i'm sure he was a part of like that john Cameron mitchell was a part of and it feels like something that you'd see at a stage show but you also get the benefit of you know the fact that it's well animated is great but you also get to see the much more like like the less sophisticated version that's actually being uh projected so you're seeing it like diegetically, the projection, and then you see the non-diegetic version that's cleaned up for us as an audience. So we kind of get the best of both worlds. Oh, yeah. And I also love that it's just a sheet, you know, like that when you're seeing it, but they don't make it, they don't subject us to the sheet the whole time where like they, they have mercy on us. <laughs> yes, yes. We get to see, we get to sort of get uh, ro- ro- rolled into the... Uh, the illusion of it. I go to this um, thing called Loft Opera in, in New York. They're, they're, they're on pause right now. But, you know, like if you go to the opera, there's like if you go to the Met, there's like subtitles in front of your chair. Like you could these are like nice LED like subtitles that are really like very classy and very pristine. And then you go to this thing, Loft Opera, and they just literally put a sheet up and, and throw projections like minimal projections on there. And that's kind of what it reminded me of. It's just like this kind of slapdash thing. Yeah, it feels like they would actually like set that up and be able to set that up in the weird space like they're literally performing behind a salad bar but like you feel like oh yeah th- in this <laughs> next venue though they had room for a projector we have a t-shirt yeah. that's white we could just hang that up <laughs> yes yes the salad but the buffet one is the best too where where people are just going in the buffet line while they're doing their performance and like, i don't know why i love those moments of just like this idea of of, of someone performing in like a like a family restaurant the sizzler um yeah, exactly. Like Sizzler, Chili's, TJ Fridays, and then just doing their whole rock show while their uh, agent or manager is like excitedly filming it. But I, it just – it's close enough to reality that it feels like it could have happened somewhere at some point. But it's just so removed from anything I've ever seen at a Perkins. Um, it is just uh, – but again, all the dining experience stuff is very realistic. I Like you see those people. Uh, and you see the reactions to any minor annoyance at like all of those places. In college, there was a food hall, and the way it was. Oh, my set college up had one was... of those too. <laughs> the food hall, and the way it was set up is there. You walk in one way, you cannot leave that way for security reasons, obviously, and then you have to walk through the cafeteria, get your food, whatever, and then you have to walk through the uh, the seating area, and then um, then you can exit. And in that room. 
they would have bad college rock bands performing in a space that did not give them any help in terms of acoustics. And they were also bad. Uh, like or during lunch or like during at least dinner? Like at the most awkward times, like at like four o'clock. And one of those guys done, performing just done with class. turned out to be Ed Sheeran. um and then also so that was like bad or whatever but at least they were like into the songs like whatever especially it was a jam band i was like oh they'll be here for eight hours it doesn't matter people are gonna be walking in and out anyways um and the when the worst thing ever was they regularly had a short form improv group doing (laughs) short form oh 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 boy so (laughs) So huge lines in any way style Avatar and the style of Goodfellas, and you just be like, no, 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 get my tray out of here. Get, like, I remember abandoning food halfway through. I'm, I'm so uncomfortable that like, and my, my butt is so clenched, like I may never poop again. Like, <laughs> I just like, I might crack a molar at how awkward this is. Like, I feel like your, you, your body is like trying to make itself smaller and smaller, like a pumpkin that's left on your silt way too long after Halloween. <laughs> like, uh, uh, so. I didn't have that, but I, I remember that same moment my, like, freshman year in college where they had, like, a – they didn't even have a battle of the bands, but they had, like, a p- performance that you – and it was kind of a battle of the bands and, like, you could go and perform. And it wasn't a stage. It was just, like, in a little concrete, like, centerpiece between two halls. And I'd walk by it a couple times for class, and there was a couple different bands that performed. But, like, everyone was level with the audience. It was just – like near a fountain and they just had these these bands these performing at like during class time like one thursday and it was funny because like one of them actually did a really good cover of uh rage against the machines killing in the name of but like i'm walking from class and like there's three people gather around these people on the concrete at like two in the afternoon and it's like you could have scheduled this a little better because this isn't terrible i'd go watch this but like who the, why would you do this right now and the right only here reason I'm, I'm on campus is to go to class like yeah. why right now two in the afternoon at like just like a little like a connecting path in between the halls <laughs> 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 uh just wanted to bring up casting and just like the minor roles andrea martin is in this and i think that you just have to like acknowledge her presence the moment where she leaves hedwig when when uh, hedwig's a, a jerk to yitzhak is is like the moment you know that you have to look in, inward is when Andrea Martin's not on your side anymore. <laughs> she's not in your corner she's re- anymore. She's really great. You fucked up. And then there's also, there's two of my favorite minor moments from non-speaking roles. So, uh, <laughs> Suk Yin Lee is the guitarist in the, like, the laundry place who is, like, like oh, doing yeah. the guitar solo for, like, way too long. And oh, I thought it was an ice cream shop. No, that was like a laundry place. And he's like, he's okay. just, she's like, like Hedwig's like, did you put the bra in the dryer that moment? Right. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. And uh, that is Sookin Lee, who is in, who becomes the lead in Short Bus and is like a woman about town. She's like a Canadian uh, celebrity. But that's like, I just was like, is that Sookin Lee? And it, it was. Um, that's all. That's awesome. I did not catch that at all. And then and short bus is fantastic. <laughs> it's, it's it's great. We could talk about that for another two and a half hours. Um, but uh, let's do it. Um, the other one was um, the car wash. You remember the car wash? 
the yes. the old man who's who's they're doing the car wash to is Alan Mand- Mandel, and he plays the Ed Koch type, uh, the one the closeted sort of Ed Koch type who goes to Short Bus in in the movie Short Bus. He's also like a, a well known <laughs> stage actor too, not super well known, but like he's a stage actor. And uh, I thought, oh, that's awesome. I thought that was funny that they got them for like two non speaking roles, but that were just still hilarious. It's kind of it's kind of sweet. He's nodding at the community that made him yeah. and made it him get to the point that he could actually make a fucking indie movie about what started as like a pretty small like off Broadway musical that he and some friends put together. Yeah, like, and Stephen Trask. We should like definitely. We've been talking about John yep. Cameron Mitchell. Stephen Trask's songs though, uh, those, those yeah. are all him, and that's they're fantastic. I so mea culpa. I for some reason had no fucking idea that John Cameron Mitchell didn't write the music until researching for this episode. So you can see how much I was removed from this movie and that I had somehow never heard of it. For some reason, I remember back when I discovered it, thinking that John Cameron Mitchell had written all the music. And yeah, I was way off. Yeah. And also he, he's got a new musical out uh, that's coming out like in a couple weeks, I think, um, called This Ain't No Disco. That's it's going to be playing in New York. So I am very curious I mean, about that. It's, take, it's taking a talking heads uh, line. I'm, I'm already into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be at the same place that uh, that premiered the band's visit, which is now on Broadway and now going to like now a thing that people are seeing. So this could be pretty cool. Who knows? It's like awesome. it's set in 1979 New York, uh, I think, and it's like it's like Studio 54 world. So I'm very curious to huh, see that. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to hear the soundtrack because I will pro- not get to see it because I do not live in New York. Yeah, I we should make more movies about New York. Oh, I definitely God. think there should be more movies about the New culture, York. the buildings. <laughs> they should make you more know, movies about mo- Vancouver, I think. You know why it's hard to make movies about New York? Because um, in a- any movie that New York's in, uh, it's a character in the movie. Yeah. And the asking price for that for that character actor is high. It's very high. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> uninsurable. That's why. It's so high they usually date their cousin, Toronto. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so or we can Atlanta. do some final thoughts. <laughs> um, or else I think we would talk about this movie for another three hours. Um, but uh, like I said, I I just – I, I'm probably going to listen to the soundtrack on the way to work tomorrow because we've been talking about it so much and it was a week since I've done that uh, after I rewatched it for this podcast. Like this is just a – just a fantastic musical and i'm you know bummed that i didn't know about it until like 12 years after it had come out uh but uh if if for some reason you have not seen this movie or this is one of those weird movies that also passed you by uh go fucking watch it because it's so good it is a movie that was very it was very important to me at a specific point in time and like this is an interesting kind of nostalgia because i feel like nostalgia is usually people talk about like gremlins and home alone and goonies and shit like and home alone 2 home, <laughs> home alone 3 there's men destroyed by society getting tortured by a rich kid it's like he's just defending his property rights that's all he's doing and we're supposed to root him on his property rights he's just I mean, torturing those i mean they lot. are they they are breaking into the home to murder that child yes he's they're two marginalized men breaking into this rich kid's home I, yeah. You know what? We shouldn't be thinking about how we're going to trap them. We should be thinking, how are we going to support them? I'm only half joking. <laughs> Read more of my socialist movie reviews on Letterboxd. I'm fine supporting 
Joe Pesci's character, I think I'm fine with what happens to Daniel Stern's character. <laughs> He's pretty bad. They're both pretty bad. No, they want to like take off his fingernails. I don't know. I. Oh, I do not want to go past this, uh, Peter, while you're doing your final thoughts, because I would we, we should definitely not forget to mention on this show, uh, obviously you've turned around on musicals, and that's been very – Musical May has been very important to that, uh, and this is – we're wrapping that up here. When we first started talking about musicals before we even had this podcast, and I couldn't believe – as I was listing ones, whether it was singing in the rain and all these other things, I couldn't believe that like, like you, it was very clear that you didn't like musicals. It was not like I don't like most because a lot of these like classic ones that you know everyone liked, even if they didn't like musicals, you were a no across the board of almost anything I mentioned. And the only one that you were like, oh yeah, no, that is the exception that proves the the rule was Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And it is nice that we're closing out the second month because the second month has been pretty positive, uh, positive with, with you know, some some caveats, obviously. Um, but this month has been pretty positive and it's been very rejuvenating for me because like I uh, it's nice to not feel like you're an old piece of shit stuck in your ways. Uh, <laughs> it's nice to, to feel like you can still discover new parts of yourself that you can embrace and love. And, and this movie helped me uh this is one of the movies where I was like, you know, maybe I do like musicals. And then uh, thanks to you, Aaron, and thanks to uh, the musical May part of the show, uh, I'm pretty much turned around. I want to do this every May. Yeah, now we can. I think next I think next year we do like, I don't know, 50s or 60s, like classic like Hollywood studio musicals. I say we do something. <laughs> we, we we did we did some questionable ones. We did that both that were only based on neither of us had seen it so we could uh watch them with fresh eyes. We did some of our uh favorites this month. And I say we we maybe just yeah, every May, but we Maybe a meet me in St. Louis. Never seen it. Ah, it's a great one. You you're planning that. You got to let me know what you want. I will hook you up with the with the Rex. Because that is oh, yeah. all I watched for my life, my whole life to this day. <laughs> <laughs> David, I feel pretty certain in saying that you will you will be on well before next uh, musical May. <laughs> uh, but we will definitely we, when when it comes around again, we'll be definitely be giving you a call. Yeah, I'm just I'm just upset I missed uh, Batman Forever because you know best Batman movie, right? It's better than uh, it's it's in the top 75%. It is, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree with that. Um, uh, David, what are your final thoughts on uh, Hedwig and the Angry? I want to visit sunny Yugoslavia so badly. Um, <laughs> that is that is one of the funniest throwaway jokes in the movie. Yeah. It was just a picture of their mom sitting on a beach in Yugoslavia. <laughs> I love this movie. It's got its problems, but like I also think it captures kind of a time and place really well. Like it, it feels like it could only have been made in in you know two thousand two thousand one. Um, it feels like it came from a certain place. Um, it's like it's so. It feels so personal and just like so specific, which is ultimately what I look for in any piece of art. It's just, you know, that specificity. Um, I think, you know, structurally, it's like you're like thematically, it's a little bit it's got the problems that we talked about. Um, but, you know, it's still it was a hugely important musical to me. Interesting to see the movie after ha not having seen the movie version for so, so long. Um and yeah, like it, it really works. It's a really beautiful film. And it is so funny too, because 
when we reached out to you, we had no idea of your personal connection to this movie or your history with it. We just knew we wanted you on as a guest and sent you a list of, I think, uh, three or five movies or whatever that we had coming up. Yeah. So it's always great, like, from our perspective as well, when we're able to just happen upon a movie that ends up having uh, this much personal resonance for one of our guests. I almost so didn't want to this- do this one or Little Shop. I was also I was in Little Shop in college. That was like one of my favorites growing up, too. And like those two, I, I almost didn't want to do one of them because like I was like, oh, the lore and like Tokyo Tribe. I really want to see one of those movies. But like you can't resist. There's so much to talk about with Hedwig. And like yeah. it's it's such a like we could we could legitimately talk about this movie for another two hours. I can't think of anybody else that would have been more perfect for this. Thank you so much for coming on, David. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a it's been a real pleasure and in, in, uh, to to talk about movies with you two fine folks. Yeah, this has been a yeah. blast. Yeah. You are definitely going to be back, David. Do you have anything to plug? I do. Sure. Yeah. Um, I am. I'm finishing up a graduate program in media, and so I have a lot of work that you can view on uh, Vimeo.com/slash David Clark Five, the number five, um, which is a reference to the Dave Clark Five, which is something that um, <laughs> hey, every history hey, teacher I've ever look. had, for whatever reason, every history teacher I've ever had points out the Dave Clark Five to me. No other teachers, just history teachers of my childhood. It's really strange, <laughs> um, but uh, you could find my work there, and I am. A, an audio and video editor and I'm looking for work. So if you want to see that work and then give me money to do your work, I am down for that. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's all. I don't really have anything to plug except uh, hire me for your jobs. I, I'd hire you. I'm about to start looking for work right now. So We'll definitely put that in the show notes, the link to your to your stuff on Vimeo. Um, and I'm excited to check it out myself. Yeah, so, and I, I'll uh, send you, I, I just did an audio documentary. I will send you that as well. Awesome. Yeah. Very excited. So, uh, yeah, thanks again. You were an amazing guest. Um, I feel like Peter and I sometimes say this a million times uh, to guests because we really – this really was just an amazing, amazing episode and we're so glad you joined us for it and we're going to have you back very soon. Peter, now it seemed like you wanted something. You had something you wanted to promote. You wanted to get in there really early. Peter, what do you have to promote? Next month? On We Have to Watch? Was that what you Please keep listening to the show. Um, um, please. Uh, the, the link will be uh, in your iTunes that you already have open. Yeah. Um, yeah. Please I mean, we. Un- please don't unsubscribe. Yeah, our tracking is really good, so we know when you stop listening individually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, SoundCloud, pay for premium. Uh, <laughs> uh, so. Uh, yeah, next month is summer camp month, um, and we are decided to tackle that genre by picking one example from all of the mini going to camp genres. So we're starting that next week with Jesus Camp, the documentary, uh, as the <laughs> documentary genre, mini genre, with Amanda Lett will be our guest. Uh, and then we are doing Heavyweights, which is the kids' <laughs> camp movie. Uh, the Burning, which is the horror camp movie. And then What Hot American Summer with Anthony uh, Pizzo uh, as the comedy camp movie. Uh, and as we mentioned last week as well, if you're worried, why why did you choose The Burning over Sleepaway Camp? It's because we have some bigger plans for Sleepaway Camp. Later on, I think uh, I've seen both The Burning and Sleepaway Camp. Sleepaway Camp is the better movie. The Burning is also excellent, but we have bigger plans for that because it is such a uh, wild uh, movie that we will be covering on this show. And then 
uh, we might as well mention it. I think we mentioned it last week or the week before. Uh, we did we did have a winner for the poll for July. Joseph J. Finn won the Blu-rays, and uh, the month that was picked was Joe Dante Summer. So we'll we'll talk more about guests in order here in a few weeks. But uh, Joe da- Dante Summer means we're doing The Burbs, Gremlins Two, Rock and Roll High School, and Matin A. And uh, I could not be more excited about that month because there's no director I've wanted to. Devote a month to more than Joe Dante since we started this podcast. So thank you to all of you who voted for the right one. Uh, I think that's all our business. Thank you again, David and Aaron. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, yeah. and thank you, Peter, for not doing an awkward ending like you so often do and just having a general thank you that ends in a good night. Good night. Good night. Free Tibet. <laughs> no, that's, that's not awkward. <laughs> grew quite scared of our strength and defiance and Thor said I'm gonna kill them all with my hammer like I killed the giants hey folks thanks for listening to we love to watch thank you so much for listening to our show and we've got just a few quick announcements for you there ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs baby if you'd like to talk to us uh, tell us we're stupid. Tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch or our website, wltwpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available, if you don't use iTunes, we're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again... Above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.